Hello and welcome to the second episode of As Yet Unexplained. And it is also the first part of our two-part look at the UFO sightings of 1978. In this six-part series, we will be looking at the stories behind some of the most famous, mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. Two notable UFO sightings occurred towards the end of 1978. And is it possible that they are in fact connected? If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing, or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. The Sightings of 78 Part 1. Valentich 1978 is an often overlooked year, as few people see the importance 78 has to play in the world stage. Events such as the birth of the first test tube baby, the first cellular mobile phone, and the computer game Space Invaders are launched. The year also boasted, like many others, a far darker side, with events such as cult leader Jim Jones finally ending his People's Temple in Guyana with a mass suicide command. The serial killer, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, is convicted of murder after terrorising New York, and film director Roman Polanski flees to France hours before he is to be formally sentenced for rape and other charges against a child. All these things are the items of history that can be found in any or all history books. But there were two events in 1978 that stood out head and shoulders above the rest, and today precious few people are aware of them. October the 21st and December the 31st are two of the most important days in 1978, as well as two of the most important dates in the history of ufology. In my research, I can only find one sighting from the 21st, whereas the 31st has a plethora of stories to choose from. For example, on that date at 7 o'clock p.m. in Bayford, a Mr. and Mrs. Mason sighted a mysterious cigar-shaped object moving through the sky. The UFO had a long body with lots of tiny lights. In Carlisle, Cumbria, a silver triangle crossed the sky from west to east. Another triangle with a grey hue crossed the sky from west to east in Scotland. And another huge triangle was seen flying in the same direction over Hull in the United Kingdom. At 1 o'clock a.m. in Posada, Italy, a three metre in diameter glowing sphere appeared. It had dark triangular spots that moved back and forth on its surface. And at 3 p.m. in Homestead, Florida, three men saw a silver disc hovering one block away from where they lived. A Mr. Bettencourt described the UFO as being between 40 to 50 feet in diameter and having no visible engine or wings, and it was making no noise. It hovered for about 30 seconds before flying off. And finally, in Zermatt, Switzerland, at 10 o'clock p.m., two witnesses observed a luminous round object over the Alpine glaciers, brightly illuminating the ice. All these sightings are scattered around the world, 
but for a small point in time, two specific encounters with the unexplained shared the same geographical location and similar traits. Although never officially confirmed as connected, could it actually be possible that in some way they are? Twenty-first of October, 1978. A light airplane, a rented single-engine Cessna, 182-litre design, with the registration of VHDSJ, had left Victoria's Morabin Airport at 6.19pm and was being piloted over the Bass Strait in a south-eastwardly direction towards the location of King Island. The pilot of the Cessna was 20-year-old Frederick Valentich, and this 125-mile training flight to Kings Island was going well with good flying conditions reported. The previous year had been a difficult and disappointing one for Frederick. It had been his lifelong dream to become a pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force, but such a dream was dashed when he was rejected on the grounds of his inadequate education. Frederick had decided to fall back on his second choice to become a commercial pilot. But a dream like this had to be achieved in increments. Step one, he had joined the Air Training Corps and had successfully obtained his private license. And step two, he was continuing his studies on a part-time basis in order to fulfil his secondary dream. Frederick had failed all five of his course exam subjects and retaken them only to fail again. The previous month, Frederick was to escalate his mounting failures by failing yet another three exam subjects, as well as being involved in three flying incidents. These of which had made him stand out to authorities for all the wrong reasons. Frederick had been called up in front of the officials where he had the charges presented before him. The first was for straying into a controlled restricted zone in Sydney. Frederick only received a warning for this one, but the citations he had received for both the flying deliberately into a cloud blindly incidents were more than justified. But what he did not expect was the impending threat of prosecution these last charges carried with them. The October the 21st, 1978 flight was Frederick's second solo night flight, as he had had a Class 4 instrument rating, which meant he could operate at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions. Conditions for flying were perfect, until Frederick reported what he believed was another aircraft passing over him. He immediately relayed this event to the Melbourne Air Flight Service, asking if there was any known traffic below 5,000 feet, to which controller Steve Roby stated in the negative, an answer that would be repeated throughout their radio exchange. Well, he just made a standard position report over Cape Lockway with an estimate for King Island, um, I think he said he was operating below 5,000, and that was it. Valentich continued to tell the controllers that something was indeed flying close to his vicinity. When asked by the controllers if he could identify it as an aircraft, Valentich said he could not. 
He was insistent that the object was not an aircraft and, in fact, repeated the statement several times to the air traffic controller. Frederick stated that the craft had passed about a thousand feet, 300 meters, above him. He described the object as having at least four illuminated lights and a single illuminated green one. The shape of the object was described as elongated and shiny on the outside, almost to a metallic finish. The unidentified object proceeded to travel out of sight at an extreme speed. This hampered Valentich in its identification. The object then approached him again from a different angle, the east, and repeated this a couple of times. Towards the end of this communication, Frederick Valentich started to complain that the engine of his plane was starting to rough idle and cough. The air traffic controller asked Frederick what his intentions were, and Frederick replied that he was heading to Kings Island, and then abruptly stated that the strange aircraft was now hovering on top of him again. A transcript of the sound recording then states that the communication goes silent for two seconds, and then Valentich is heard saying that the craft was hovering, and that it is not an aircraft. The transcript then states that the recording goes silent for 17 seconds, with the ambient hiss of an open microphone and an accompanying audible unidentified staccato noise. Communication was lost, and no sign of Frederick or the Cessna were ever seen again. What follows is the transcript of the six-minute exchange with the air traffic controller Steve Roby. This has been slightly abridged, but has been taken from the audio tape transcription and reenacted here. Transcript. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. I am. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot affirm. It is four bright. It seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Roger. And it is a large aircraft? Confirm? Uh, unknown due to the speed it's travelling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. It's approaching right now from due east towards me. Silence for two seconds. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time at speeds I could not identify. Roger, what is your actual level? My level is four and a half thousand, four, five, zero, zero. And confirm you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. Roger, stand by. It's not an aircraft, it's... Silence for two seconds. Can you describe the uh, aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Silence for three seconds. Cannot identify more than that. That it has such speed. Silence for three seconds. It is before me right now, Alban. 
And how large would the uh, object be? It seems like it's stationary. What am I doing right now is orbiting. And the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and a sort of metallic light. It's all shiny on the outside. Silence for five seconds. It's just vanished. Would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it military aircraft? Confirm the uh, aircraft just vanished. Say again? Is the aircraft still with you? It's, uh, not. Silence for two seconds. Now approaching from the southwest. The engine is... is rough idling. I've got to set at 23.24 and the thing is coughing. Roger, what are your intentions? My intentions are, are to go to King Island. Uh, Melbourne, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Silence for two seconds. It is hovering, and it's not an aircraft. Just listening to him, I can still remember it distinctly. Um, the way he was speaking to me in a broken communication, a form of hesitant communication. He definitely sounded as if he was under stress and I could just picture him sort of in the aircraft looking around for this object in the sky. In the aftermath of the events, the RAAF decided to send out a Lockheed P-3 Orion aircraft to help the already assembled civilian aircraft that were combing the area. So that no stone would remain unturned, an additional ocean-going ship was also sent out on this extensive sea and air rescue or retrieval mission. An oil slick was soon discovered 18 miles north of King's Island. It was initially thought to be fuel from the downed aircraft, but it was soon discovered that this had no connection to the events. It was with extremely heavy hearts that the civilians and officers involved in the search had to report that after their 1,000 square mile sweep of the locale, they had found nothing. Not a trace of Frederick Valentich or his plane. It was finally on October the 25th, 1978, that the search was officially called off. Although any of the pilots that had heard the story would invariably keep an eye out for either wreckage or mysterious lights. The Bureau of Air Safety Investigation and the Department of Transport released their findings on the mysterious case in May 1982, four years after the incident, where they established that the reason for the disappearance of the aircraft was to be categorised as has not been determined. This general investigative term further explained that the incident was presumed fatal for Frederick. Five years later, and a mysterious object washes up on the hot beach of Flinders Island. This object is a piece of an aircraft engine cowl flap. 
the Bureau of Air Safety Investigation brought in the expertise of the Royal Navy Research Laboratory to consult on this artifact. The conclusion to this investigation revealed that the cowling had been identified as coming from a Cessna 182 series, which would encompass a range of serial numbers to which Frederick Valentich's aircraft could have been included. Many theories have been hypothesized as to the reason and even possibly the motive behind the disappearance of Valentich. Some of these ideas are absurd and some require more investigation, but alas, we can only use the sources that have been made available to us. Therefore, a lot of conjecture has always been put into these stories to spice them up. A lot of these theories can be subdivided into three main categories, these being faked disappearance, accidental death, and finally, extraterrestrial encounters. In my opinion, it is sad to think that Frederick would stage his own death, and in truth, there is scant evidence to support this idea. In my mind, knowing my son, I was sure that he was encountered something very seriously because he would never go on that radio and compromise his future career as a um, pilot. The bulk of the theory seems to rest on the small concept that Valentich gave two contradictory reasons for his fateful flight that night to King's Island. On first inquiry, he stated that his intention was to pick up some friends, and his second version was to collect some crayfish from the island. It was discovered that both of these reasons were possibly untrue, as he had not made the appropriate arrangements and followed the standard procedures that were necessary to inform King's Island Airport. Considering Valentich's record of not following procedure, it could be possible that either or both reasons are true, and he would have been appropriately reprimanded again for his disregard of the rules, whether intentional or not. The possibility of accidental death cannot be ruled out, as it was clear that Frederick was an inexperienced pilot. The evidence of this can be found in the fact that he had only managed to clock up a total of 150 hours of flight. Although not a reflection of his ability, the 150 hours clearly show that he had not been flying a plane for very long and lacked the experience of doing so. If it was not for the fact that he had had an inadequate level of education, one could argue that the 150 hours may not have mattered as he could have taken to flying like a duck to water. But clearly this was not the case. I personally don't think that uh, he fabricated the, his disappearance. One popular perception of the clues is that Valentich had become disorientated and was in fact flying upside down. I have a problem with this theory as a simple piece of research will show that although a Cessna can fly upside down, sustained inverted flight will cause the fuel to leak and therefore will stop the fuel from entering the engine. The craft has two fuel tanks that are part of an on-off type of selector and the fuel is gravity-fed, although sometimes at low pressure, a small fuel pump is used to aid the flow. This pump is also used to aid starting the aircraft, takeoff, landing, and also for switching to either of the fuel tanks, and is not used at all for any sustained period of time. 
Valentich would never have managed to sustain the flight for the length of time he saw the lights, and furthermore, he would have first observed the fuel leaking from the craft before he witnessed any strange lights. Another theory is that the area suffers from the optical malady of a tilted horizon, which in turn could have confused our ill-experienced pilot into overcompensating and sending the aircraft into a downward spiral, aptly named a graveyard spiral. This would decrease fuel flow, resulting in the rough idling that was reported to Steve Roby. But this does not explain the strange, mysterious lights. A further proposal to the accidental death conclusion is that the stationary lights that were reported were in fact the planets Venus, Mars, Mercury and the star of Antares. I have been in a plane at night, high above the serene blanket of clouds and looked out of the window at the visible stars. And that is exactly what they look like. The stars do not take on brand new characteristics once you get a few hundred or even a thousand feet above the clouds. I find it incredibly unbelievable and an insult to any pilot who it has been suggested to that they have mistaken a star for anything other than a star. And anyway, this does not include the fact that he was being buzzed by a moving object in an almost cat-and-mouse type manoeuvre. It's approaching, right now from due east towards me. Silence for two seconds. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times, at a time at speeds I could not identify. Two UFO researchers by the names of John W. Aschetti and Paul Norman had heard the final moments of Valentich's exchanges with Steve Roby, and more notably the strange metallic staccato noise that was heard after the transmission had gone quiet for 17 seconds. These final moments, as well as the entire recording, were recorded by air traffic control onto audio tape. The two researchers have managed to get redacted copies of the original voice tapes from the Department of Transport, which they then sent to be analysed by the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, and another further copy was taken to the USA for analysis by Dr Richard F. Haynes, who was a former researcher with NASA Ames and an associate professor of psychology at San Jose State University. After some time, the analysis results concluded that the sound consisted of 36 separate bursts of sound with distinctive start-and-stop audio pulses. Haynes then stated that there was no discernible patterns in time or frequency. This was an unexpected result, and one that no one really understands the reasons or implications of. But rest assured, it was definitely unexpected and unidentified. After the reports of Frederick's disappearance were made public, many other individuals came forward with their tales of UFO sightings. These individuals have stated that they too had reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky similar to the green light mentioned in the Valentich transcript. A UFO group called Ground Saucer Watch have said that a photograph on the very same day by Roy Manifold depicted a fast-moving object exiting the water near the Cape Otway Lighthouse. 
Close study of these pictures reveal that they are not clear enough to identify the object, and UFO groups state that they show an unknown flying object of moderate size surrounded by a cloud of vapour or exhaust residue. The background story surrounding the photos is simple. Roy Manifold had set up a time-lapse camera on the shoreline to photograph the setting sun over the shimmering, tranquil waters. After the pictures had been developed, they showed a fast-moving object exiting the water. Manifold believes that the photographs were taken at around 6.47pm. This would place their capture at 20 minutes before Valentich reported seeing the object. On that night, I decided I'd go up in the, uh, there outside the uh, hut and take the, uh, the sun setting in the, in the beautiful end of the west. Oh, I took a series of photographs, about six in, in all, at around about 15, 20 second intervals, and, uh, and that was it. Further analysis of the images by other UFO groups have led some to believe that the distance that the object had moved between frames relative to clouds in the background indicates that the object was travelling at a speed of around 200 miles per hour. They come back and they said, oh, it's definitely not a, a developing error. It's nothing to do with the, uh, the film or the development of the film on the print, but they couldn't explain what it was and why it was there. It had already been established that Valentich was interested in the UFO and alien phenomenon and would often collect news articles and features on the subject. It has even been stated that he had previously spotted a UFO moving away amazingly fast and he had told his father his worries about what would happen if extraterrestrial craft should ever attack. I still stay, uh, believe that he was involved with that. Perhaps Valentich was trying to clock up additional hours of flying experience, or he could possibly have decided to look for UFOs and too afraid to admit it to the air authorities, and therefore lied and offered a more legitimate sounding reason. It could have been his inexperience that led to his demise, or alternatively, he could simply be living a new life somewhere else in the world. As it stands on its own, some people will be able to conclude this story in their mind with a degree of personal certainty. But please hold back on your decision until you have heard the rest of the story, as the disappearance of Frederick Valentich might not be as simple as previously thought. The worst things that might happen to him uh, would have been being abducted by uh, some unknowing civilization and uh, possibly will take we don't know how many years before we'll be able to see him again. In my heart, I do believe that one day I will see him again. In part two, we will be going further and looking into the case of the Kaikoura Lights. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio and in the show notes, so feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, or even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week, 
we will be concluding our two-part look at the UFO sightings of 1978 as we explore the incidents of the Kaikoura Lights. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Daniels, 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 and I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country, where hauntings, curses, cryptids and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re-release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember the wolves are weird. Oh, loose.